And now for your listening pleasure, here's Polizzi and Rose, PNR with This Old Marketing. Take it away, boys. Well, hello, content marketers. I'm Robert Rose, and welcome to episode number 117 of PNR's This Old Marketing, recorded Monday, February 9th, 2016. Well, congratulations to the Broncos for defeating the Carolina Panthers 24-10 in Super Bowl 50, and especially congratulations to Peyton Manning, who seemingly on the very last part of his Hall of Fame career would be expected to now retire and ride off into the sunset. That's right, retire. So what got us thinking here at PNR decided to look at what else should be retired this year, not just Peyton Manning, but and not necessarily just because it's come to a Hall of Fame type of career ending, but just because these are the things that, yeah, simply need to be retired. And don't worry, Joe and I aren't on this list, as Douglas Adams so wonderfully said. Joe and I attack everything in life with a mix of extraordinary genius and native incompetence. And yeah, it's often difficult to tell which is which. So here are some of the things that we think should be retired along with Peyton Manning. Here we go. How about bringing that vintage thing into the coffee shop like the vinyl turntable or the typewriter or the actual hardline telephone? All things I've seen, by the way, that needs to be retired. That Martin Crowley, Crick Crowley guy, that Pharma Bro guy, yeah, he definitely needs to be retired. Millennial-specific marketing statistics that tell us how to sell products to these strange creatures, that needs to be retired. They're just young, not from another planet. Skinny jeans, enough said. Retire them. That Walking TV or Walking Dead TV show, stop your hate mail. It needs to be retired. Right now, it's become walking boring. Oh, and the term modern marketer is if we were on the cover of Cosmo. What four things do modern marketers do before you even have your bagel? That needs to be retired. By Felicia, that totally needs to be retired. Describing content as snackable, immersive, sticky, a feast, anything else with food-like metaphors, that needs to be retired. Giant beards that look like a small marsupial is giving you the alien facehugger grip. Unless you're the relief pitcher in game sick of the championship and you haven't shaved since you last lost, that needs to be retired. The whole idea of proving ROI as a prerequisite to doing anything in marketing, that needs to be retired. And for the love of all that is holy, emojis, bitmojis, kimmojis, emojis, get off my lawn, that needs to be retired. There are more things, of course, but I'm going to stop there for the sake of time, and let's get our post-retirement show underway here. And for that, I need to bring in my colleague, my co-host, my friend, and the Super Bowl MVP of content marketing, Mr. Joe Polizzi. How are you, my friend? I, you know, I love that list. By the way, that isn't was, that great? Was, yeah. I have to. I think the last one is the most important to me because I don't even know <laughs> the, the emojis. I, I don't even know how to communicate with people anymore. Like yeah. I'll see it on Twitter, and it's like the clapping and the hands and keys, and all, I'm like, okay, well, what do I respond to that? Um, I, I, awesome I man. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm the worst at figuring them out, too. They're like Egyptian hieroglyphics to me. I just don't – I can't figure them out. Your, for yeah, the life your of tote's me. awesome. I, I don't yeah. really know where to go anymore <laughs> with that. I just feel – Well, man, I like totes. I like totes. I, I, I do, use that no, a lot. No, I do I, like I, totes, but yeah. I don't know how to respond to emojis. I absolutely don't know what I'm, what I'm doing with any of that. So you, you watched the Super Bowl as – Of course I did. What a, what a great game. That was – I mean – if you like, defense. you know, not if you're a Carolina fan, of course, you know, but you got your butt kicked. But you know, the the yeah, for if you're a Denver Bronco fan, man, what a defense! What a def- Von Miller! Oh my God, what a defense! Could have been the greatest defense we've ever seen. And I did I think, watch. Yeah. I mean, I remember the '85 Bears. I mean, they of were, course, yeah, no, but, they were. But great. I don't think they played an offense that was this prolific. And I think that's true. They didn't. They didn't show up at all. 
Yeah, but yeah, I do have to. I have to say one thing because I know most people probably watched part of it. You know the initial throw where they went and they did looked at the replay, and I looked at it from every angle just like you did, and I said, "That's a catch. That's got to be course. a catch. It's a catch. That changed it was the entire catch. game. That was yes. a, if that's a catch, as a Dallas Cowboy fan. Hashtag it was a catch. Yes, it if that was, was a, a catch, catch. The next play wouldn't have happened, and the next play was a touchdown for Denver. That's right. And what's the point of replay if we're not going to look at it? I don't. I, don't know. I just don't understand the rules anymore. So I, I have to go and, and to a less complicated sport like baseball. Yeah. So there you go. <laughs> where everything's there you subjective. Go. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, okay, well, so what about the commercials? What, yeah. what about the commercials? Did you watch any of those? I I did. Which I was your watched, favorite? I watched. Um, I I liked the anything with Christopher Walken in it. I'm of course. So he is fantastic. I wish he would have danced in it. But other than that, I like the Christopher Walken one. And uh, what was the other car one? The, the, the one with the old. Oh, the David Bowie. Yeah, the, the David, David Bowie, Bowie Commander one. That was great. I, I like that, that one. one. So yeah. apparently it was about, I like the car commercials more than anything. So what was your, what was your favorite? I'm going to, I know this is going to just get me into trouble, but I, I, I have to say my favorite, the one I remembered the most is Puppy Monkey Baby. I, I, I. I know it's weird. I know it's creepy, and it's exactly the reason. And I do remember that it's for Mountain Dew. It's I it it it's the only one that I wanted to go back and watch again the next day to make sure that I saw it the right way. And it was it's memorable. It's weird. It was goofy. It's silly. I I liked it. All I remember is I was sitting next to my wife on the couch. We were watching this, and it played. And I said, "And now we are all dumber." For having watched that, yeah, commercial. absolutely, we are absolutely. We, and that's you the said whole that's point. your favorite. It I is totally my favorite. Absolutely, puppy, monkey, baby, punky, monkey, baby. I mean, come on, why was it? Why, what's so wrong awesome. with like baby monkey puppy? Like, why yeah. did it have to be that? See, that's what I didn't get. I wanted a baby head. Oh, you wanted a baby I head with a, a monkey head. body? Oh uh, no, it had to have the pug face, man. I I thought that was just awesome. Yeah, you're right. I guess you're right, but I'm not a dog person. So, so what are you All do? right, shall we to the shall we to the news, <laughs> my friend? Yeah, get absolutely. out of this nonsense. All right, this first article is segueing nicely for us for the Super Bowl because this article comes to us courtesy of Digiday.com. And a big hat tip here to, uh, by the way, Luke uh, Kintig, I believe is the way I pronounce his last name, from Intel, who sent us this article and some just great analysis, by the way, of what what they've been up to over there at Intel, which we won't necessarily share here. Um, But the article's headline is, What $5 million can buy in digital media? Every year, marketing pundit types ask themselves the question, is the Super Bowl worth it? And when the price tag is $5 million for 30 seconds of airtime, it's a pretty good question, especially when you begin wondering, what can you get for that money in digital? And it turns out it's quite a bit. It's things like $700,000 a day you could spend on Snapchat lenses for a week. I don't even know what a Snapchat lens is, but all right, so you could buy that. You could buy 250 million impressions at a $20 CPM of that. You could get over a billion Facebook impressions, um, and you could reach Twitter users 10 times over every Twitter user or 10 times over. I looked at this list, first of all, and I went, I kind of still want to go with the Super Bowl, but I'm not sure. What did you think about this? Well, that's exactly right. You, you can't compare to other digital media advertising opportunities because I don't know if this is a captive audience. Is it right. because a yeah, Facebook exactly. impression goes by? They, they might not have seen it, paid attention to it, whatever. I don't know. That's why I didn't love... I mean, I love the idea of this article, but I didn't that's love right. that fact because... 
you got, I mean, if you want to make a big impact and you want the majority of the world to see it one time, at least you you buy that Super Bowl ad and you will absolutely get the majority of people, whether it's good or bad or whatever. And if it's Mountain right. Dew and the stupid commercial that you like, great. So everybody, everybody <laughs> right. sees it. They're talking about it the next day and how bad or how good it was. What I think is the opportunity, and I think that from Luke from Intel talks about this, it's the idea of what can that much money get you in building subscribership. That's where I think the that's where I think you can actually look at it and say, well, maybe maybe advertising is not because advertising is advertising is advertising. But if I'm going to choose a better kind of advertising, I want Super Bowl advertising, even though exactly. it's super expensive. That's right. I got the captive and, audience there. But yeah. in any other case, advertising, I don't know if they're paying attention or they're DVRing yeah. it or if they're totally ignoring it on whatever display. So yeah. I don't know. Do you well, agree with that? No, I do. I do. And in fact, it was coincidental because my – so every week I, I write a letter to the ICC subscribers, intelligent content subscribers. And my topic of my letter this week was actually uh, the alternatives that could be purchased for $5 million. I actually went into that. And what I ended up doing was just exactly as you're saying is what I did was I went and looked at the, the new Super Bowl com- uh, advertisers. And there were two that caught my eye, the apartments.com. Uh, advertiser who I don't know if you saw that that was with the George Washington uh, and, the, and the and right. the uh, yeah. right and the Lil Wayne and yeah, Jeff Goldblum it was better Moving than I thought up. it was going to be right yeah. it was better than I thought it was going to be and Squarespace which is obviously always uh, it, it's a, a Squarespace is a, su- a Super Bowl advertiser this year and so here's the thing most analysts will agree that. First of all, you don't run one. You don't join just one spot. You yeah. run multiple spots, right? And so it's that's more than five million bucks. Plus, there's a whole creation of the production. There is the promotion of it. The you know, and it goes on beyond the Super Bowl. So most Super Bowl campaigns are figured to be right around the twenty million dollar mark. And so what I did was I said, okay, well, not what you can do with five million dollars, but what can you do with twenty million dollars? Because if you figure that's the initial investment that you're going to make as a company in this Super Bowl campaign, what could you buy for twenty million bucks? Well, interestingly, with both Apartments.com and Squarespace, I found two acquisitions within the last year, and so the the two, ironically and coincidentally, um, both purchased by Vox Media. One was Curbed which was the network of real estate websites um, that were focusing on really hyper-local markets, um, 17 markets at the time, and I think it's since expanded to that. The purchase price was reportedly around $20 bucks, And then for Recode, you know, RE slash code, the uh, Kara Swisher and Walt Mossberg thing, yeah. that acquisition was also estimated to be in the $15 million to $20 million. And I, I wonder... Squarespace's investment, would it be better in something like Recode buying a profitable or at least revenue generating property like Recode rather than spending 20 million bucks on a Super Bowl campaign? And to me, buying an asset like Recode or Curbed, the network of real estate red sites for, for apartments.com is a much better investment than, than a Super Bowl campaign. But, you know, that's just me. Well, I mean, I love that take. I mean, just look at what what is it? Puppy, monkey, baby? Is that it? Or monkey? Puppy, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Baby. Come on, that's okay. funny. Well, that's okay, cla- that's comedy gold right there, my friend. It's it's something. Is what it is. <laughs> um, so let let that was Mountain Dew. Most yeah. some people didn't even know that that was Mountain Dew's new that's whatever right. flavor that they're promoting. Uh, they promote a lot on uh, sports media properties. They could have definitely. I could until I, I, the cows come home. I bet you they could have got Grantland for. 20 million or oh, less. Sure. So just think about that. 
Now, I mean, there is a, we've, we talked about it on the show last time, you know, sort of Grantland is that guy. You know, you know this better than I do. Bill you were Simmons, a bigger fan. Yeah. yeah. And so would he have gone along with a brand doing that? he was already that? gone. He was right. already gone. So it didn't matter. But I think the point is, well, I mean, I love that about thinking about purchasing an asset. Here's something else because I, I know you, uh, you had that great article in the Intelligent Content uh, newsletter. And I went back and I wrote this in – this is February 6, 2012. And the article uh, that I wrote was, what can a Super Bowl ad buy you in content marketing? So I didn't look at, and by the way, average cost of a Super Bowl ad just four years ago is three point five million. So this year five. I mean that's pretty, <laughs> pretty significant growth. No kidding. Of uh, so who is ever making that? CBS, is, <laughs> CBS made made some money off of that. Uh, and I basically say so three point five million for those counting. That's one hundred and sixteen thousand dollars a second. Uh, and then I, I looked at like what you could buy in content creation. And so this is just a, real quickly is what I went through. 47 issues of your own custom magazine, 32-page custom magazine you could get for that. Right, sure. Uh, 16,000 blog posts. Uh, you could get 1,167 white papers developed if you wanted to do that. Uh, you could get your own chief content officer to serve you for the next 23 years or a fantastic managing editor for the next 40 years. <laughs> uh, which I think is so funny. 233 to 411 webinars, depending on uh, how robust they are. 14 full-scale customer events, which is probably my favorite one. 14 events, you could do that. And then 50, 175-page books. So anyways, I just thought you would get a kick out of some of I those totally. statistics as you could get that. But I guess that's, you know, what what I didn't see and I was hoping for were the the calls to action of some kind to get people to subscribe to something. Sure. Was that like missing? Oh, well, sure. I mean, yes. I mean, of course it's missing. I mean, that's the, you know, I mean, when we get, when we, it's funny, when we get to my rave, it'll, it'll, it'll be, it'll be that, that point specifically comes up for sure. Um, you know, one of the things that I think, you know, that, that really struck me, and this is, this, this was the ultimately my point in the ICC letter that I wrote. It wasn't necessarily like, cause I want to assume for a minute that we're dumb, right? You know, like I said in the, in the intro with the Douglas Adams thing, you know, the, the difference between naive incompetence and genius is, you know, pretty, pretty thin <laughs> yes. sometimes with you and me, but, you know, so let me, I want to assume for a minute that, you know, okay, they are getting an ROI out of this. They are actually, they're actually doing something and getting something meaningful out of this Super Bowl. you know, spending 20 million bucks. Here's the question I asked in that was, Think about this for a second. If for somebody like Squarespace or somebody like Apartments.com, because I actually went and looked at their estimated revenue, and 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 and, and Apartments.com is easy was easier to not. I couldn't get it exactly, but because they belong to a, a holding company that is actually a public company. Now they don't they don't break out the revenue of Apartments.com versus the other things they do, but that they ran that commercial more than once. And so I'm going to give them the twenty million dollar bill there. Okay, that's somewhere. That's somewhere north of five to ten percent of their revenue for apartments.com that they spent on that campaign. On one thing. On one thing. And so the question I ask is what's the most important piece of content you wrote this year that your company created? And did you spend anywhere near five or ten percent of your revenue, your company's yearly revenue, creating that one thing? 
And the answer is obviously and ridiculously no. Of course we didn't. And so to me, it's like because the point of your post originally, the the the, the one a couple of years ago, and the point of this is really the the silliness not silliness but i'm just going to say the why are we struggling so hard to make a business case for what is ostensibly a rounding error in most marketing and advertising budgets that you know we struggle so hard to spend tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars on a content program that could meaningfully change the customer experience of what we're driving people into with how much we spend with advertising and why is that such a struggle you know, we spend so much money on advertising, and then when we do have a call to action to send them somewhere, it's a thing that we're spending a pittance on. You know, our website or the experiences or the blog or the social media or whatever it is, and that just baffles me. That so anyway, that's that's know, a lot of ego wanted. involved in this too, my friend. Yeah, of I mean, course, we used to sell course. if we wanted to really sell a custom magazine to somebody, the best thing that we could do is is do a mock-up and put the ceo's image on the cover <laughs> and you know what it usually yeah. got approved then there you go because somebody says hey i see that magazine that's me or i see that i'm going i'm going to be with my friends with my family i'm going to see the super bowl and, and that's the tough part about content marketing custom media custom publishing yeah, all the through the, through the days because targeted media isn't is only seen by a few people that you want yeah. to reach yeah. it's not on the newsstands for the most part so it's tough to make that impact to the you know around the world like you would with a Super Bowl that ad that may not do anything at all. So well speaking, well speaking of getting into the custom publishing business, um, that segues really nicely into our next story here, um, which also uh, ironically comes from Digiday, and this is the headline here is Gary Vaynerchuk, the, our friend Gary V, gets into the publishing business. Um, and as the article opens up, it says the Internet entrepreneur and agency CEO Gary Vaynerchuk is building three new content hubs that are, quote, independent, but backed by brands, including Axe and GE. Vayner Publishing, which is helped as an independent venture, will run the sites. One of the publications is Axe's Magnifier magazine, which will cover style, grooming, culture and relationships. Oh, here we go. For the millennial man. There we go. Oh, How thank goodness. That? Of course. Because, we because no that. other men. The millennial <laughs> men are so much. Anyway. Anyway, get me off on another rant here. And an editor's note is managing editor Justin Rain Bryant said it will feature a concept every month that is geared toward magnifying all aspects of the modern man's life. And so and then it goes on to describe the other what's going on here with a quote by Gary and all of that. And so what do you think? I mean, is this a is this a good idea by Gary? Is this a bad idea? What do you think about this? I I'm trying to figure honestly, I'm trying to figure this thing out because I don't think this is a new idea. I, I think that this is this looks like old school custom publishing to me. Now, yeah. That now, and I did send off a, a note to Gary because I wanted to know. This is the question that I asked him, and I wanted to know: Does he own? Does Does Vayner Media, who's creating the sites, these independent sites, right. do they right. own the content? Are they in control of that asset, or does GE or X sure own it? Because yeah. that will tell. The tail, because if it's Axe or GE, then it's just pure custom publishing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that we've known forever, whether it's, yeah. you know, it's an air, airline magazine or a custom magazine or newsletter or whatever that's created by an agency yeah. on behalf of a brand. Is this renting access or is this the airline magazine where it's a work for hire, basically? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Now, if it's, hey, we have a really good idea. We think that this is needed in the marketplace. Let's go out and sell a single sponsorship to cover this. Again, 
not a new idea, not a new concept. It's been done in media and publishing for a long, long time. But I like that because at the end of the day, uh, you have an asset. It's like whether exactly. if Axe or GE leaves, uh, they've still got an asset. Now, the problem with that is let's say I create this site uh, with GE. They have some say. They, maybe they do or they don't. Uh, it, it's very hard if they then say, no, for, for 2017, I don't want to sponsor this. It's very hard to remove sort of all their culture and all the input that they've had and just, just reinsert somebody else's messaging in there. That's yeah. very difficult to do. But, it's the house flipping. That's the house flipping business, basically. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, we've got to remodel the kitchen. Yeah, uh, we got to put in a, a new roof, but you know, we get somebody else in here. You build a house on spec. You try and flip it, and then you know, and then maybe, or you rent it, you know, and then you and then you flip it whenever it's you've built enough equity into it or something like that. Yeah. I mean, but that's I mean, when we started Content Marketing Institute, I've told the story many times. You know, we didn't have the money to build the site, so what were we going to do? Well, we went out to five of our really good partners and say, hey, would you be a benefactor and would you support this site that really doesn't exist yet? We're really trying to do something important. And they went and did that. Now, we just had, instead of having one GE or an Axe, we had five really amazing companies that helped us. So from that model, that's a that's an old world publishing model for somebody that has no money or doesn't want to put any risk into it. Uh, and you can do this. So I don't know if somebody needs a, a you know a, a millennial man publication <laughs> but if they <laughs> but uh but i guess if it's obvious if you go to i mean obviously vayner media is in the agency business and they've been for a while and they've been growing extremely fast and they know their customers really well so they could go out and say look we know that customer needs this we're going to pitch it together just like we used to do and pitch a custom magazine but the, in this case it's a digital magazine and they're going they're trying to get the support and and good on them. I just, I guess, I just am a diff. I'm differing with the article that this is something innovative or new, which it's not. Right. Well, it's not. It's it's certainly in either case, it's not. It's not new or innovative. Right. It's just you know, it's it's. I think I think in some ways it could be incredibly smart um, because you know, I mean, it's one of those things where I think Gary has recognized a need and an opportunity to create these properties, which themselves could be acquired and as we've talked about and if he can get their construction funded it's a you know it's a good land grab right it's a, it's basically hey no one else is doing this so why don't i do it right i can build a grant land like now here's the thing can he right can he on the back you know can you this really gets to the point of can you outsource or can you temporarily focus on a given audience without sort of a passion and or expertise in that. In other words, can you bring in hired guns to build a passionate audience around a particular magazine? Or do you have to have the, you know, do you have to have the intestinal fortitude to go out and build this thing as a, you know, as a startup business, as something that that is core to your existence? I think that's that's the largely unproven thing here, which is I'm not sure these things can be built uh, built as sort of you know as house flipped, right? You know the sort of McMansions of of the content marketing world. I'm not I'm not convinced of that yet. It's very hard to gain an audience, a natural yeah, organic audience, without a little bit of passion behind it. The I, article points out, by the way, that the Axe 
basically the two, not, not that this matters based on the sh- few shows that we've had before, but they point out that the magazine, the Axe magazine, there's like 27 followers or something on Twitter or something like that. But they're really important people. <laughs> they are, right? They're really, they all have those egg shapes <laughs> oh as their God, pictures. They're, right? <laughs> they're really super, oh, no. super important. Oh, so, no. Yeah, no, okay. I mean, so let's just move this to the, to a, like a, I'm thinking of small businesses, and I had yeah. this conversation. This is about six months ago, and I was talking with an HVAC heating ventilating company. Uh, you know, they they uh, they they work on people's indoor air quality, and that's what they're focused. They were talking about putting together a site, a digital magazine like this, and then we got in the conversations and say, oh well, they have a really good relationship with the guy that does roofs, and they have a really good information with the uh, lady that owns a plumbing company, uh, and they have a really good uh, relationship with the landscapers. And they were talking about actually creating a consortium and together for a local area putting together a site like this. And they mm-hmm. all sort of – and because they wanted to communicate energy efficiency. And so every one of those companies have a story to tell around energy, energy efficiency and trying to impact the behavior of a house – of a homeowner in a certain area. So that's a – you know, it's the same type of thing. But instead of having, you know, one company like, a you know, a Vayner Media or Vayner Publishing – uh, work with one company, you could go out and say, "Hey, we can do this as a group." So there's lots of different models. It's just, yeah, just yeah. Well, we'll see. I mean, time will tell, right? I mean, Gary's a smart guy. He's gonna he'll he'll figure. I'm sure he'll figure out a way to make money at this. Well, I mean, if, if he already has because yeah, they probably no yeah, there GE and yes, X probably point. already signed Excellent at least an annual deal. Excellent and if, point. And if it was yes. smart, they did a, th- a two to three year deal. That's he was right. really smart. So that's right. There you go. All right, moving on to our next story here, and it is one we're going to pair together here because they're both dealing, they're related here, and you're going to see the relationship in just a second here, and they both have to do with LinkedIn. LinkedIn made news uh, this week. Um, the first article is that we'll cover and talk about is uh, from CMSWire.com, and the headline is, Why LinkedIn Dumped $175 Million MarTech Acquisition. And the way it starts out is it says, LinkedIn admitted it failed to accurately forecast the resources required to scale the B2B ad targeting platform it acquired from Bizo in 2014. We talked about that extensively on the show here. It plans to terminate the offering of the marketing automation solution. As a result, it will take a $50 million hit in forecasted revenues, LinkedIn officials said yesterday in the online professional network's fourth quarter and annual review report. Now, we're going to compare that or pair that story with one from pubexec.com, which is Wall Street Journal removes LinkedIn sharing button. Um, And this article, the way it starts out, it says, uh, Digiday actually originally reported that the Wall Street Journal has removed its LinkedIn sharing button from its article pages. It's a bold, yet not entirely unsurprising uh, move. Uh, Digiday aptly described LinkedIn as frenemies with Wall Street Journal, and it's easy to understand why Wall Street Journal would want to stop enabling the free flow of content into LinkedIn's platform. LinkedIn stands as a direct competitor to Wall Street Journal in trying to capture the senior business professional crowd. And so, I, you know, I, look, I've got a definite take on this MarTech uh, marketing automation thing, but what did you think about these sort of things in relationship with each other, well, Joe? Well, before we go on, I have a take on the Wall Street Journal move, but I okay. really want to get, first of all, 
LinkedIn had just a horrific week. A horrific uh, week. They dropped 43%, was it, yeah. Robert? Yeah. It went yeah. from like $192 a share to something like a hundred, a, a buck eight or something, $108 yeah. or something like yeah. that. So Huge, very bad week. Lost $11 billion in market cap or whatever the case is, and I just feel horrible about the whole thing because now I've seen articles that are coming across saying, oh, not just Twitter, LinkedIn's having problems too, which... I think they're much different, but I really, I really want to get your take on the Martech side because you are very close to this. So I'm just going to sit back and I, I want to hear that take. Well, so here's the so I read the entire article, and it's a really good article, by the way, on CMSYR. Very, you know, Dom Castro, who wrote the piece, um, did a really nice job of not only just getting sort of people's current take on it, but actually going back to those same people to what they actually said, you know, uh, uh, last or 2014 when the actual acquisition went down. The here's my take on it is. You know, the, the article goes through the quotes from the LinkedIn folks, which are good in PR, you know, uh, washed, as it were, um, to talk about, you know, the difficulty it is to scale a program like that and how it's not core to their business and all that kind of stuff. And I think that's mostly a lot of hooey. Um, and, and that's a technical term, by the way, hooey. And, <laughs> and so the what I think is, is that, look, being a software company and having come from that background is hard, and it's very, very specific. And one of the things that sort of if you read between the lines in the article that talks about is the difficulty that customers were having with the interface uh, and the integration of these solutions as a tool, as a, as a software product itself. And I think that so if you if you take that as sort of one data point and you look at the difficulty of how a giant company like LinkedIn that's moving at just sort of exponential speed here trying to scale and grow all of its business units at the same time, which read into that means disorganized, chaotic, and hard to keep all those machines moving at the same pace at the same level – and then developing an enterprise software tool that will meet the demands of modern marketers that are out there trying to do things, I think you run into, you know what, this is a business that's just too hard for us to get into. And I think what they discovered is is that getting into the marketing automate, the enterprise software business, was just not like for them. And quite frankly, they weren't good at it. And so they looked at the scalability of this thing and how hard it is to actually, you know, have sales engineers running around doing demos and making sure you got sales guys that are comped in the right way and making sure that you're trying to, you know, create a solution that evolves over time and has customer service issues, implementation issues. You've got, I mean, it's, you know, the list goes on and on and on. Welcome to being in the software company business. And I think they just went, you know what, it, we should just pull the plug on, you know, let's not chase good money after bad here. Let's figure out a way to use the this data to help optimize the business that is actually growing, which is their paid media sort of our, you know, ad retargeting um, content optimization thing. And, you know, the paid sort of paid advertising in the sort of the wake of what Facebook's been able to do. And I think they made a calculus that basically said, you know what, we're not this is the wrong business for us to be in. I personally think it's a mistake. I think they should have stayed the course here. I think they had a really interesting thing going and I think they could have segmented that part of the business off and really made a go at it but you know obviously I'm not inside baseball and don't know all the machinations of everything that was going on but so I think it's a mistake and I think there was a huge opportunity there but um, I, I think the reason is because quite frankly the software business was too hard for them to be in oh, it's such an interesting take Boy, you could go both directions with it, right? You could say, man, this is a really smart decision because they're focusing on what they do well, and that's just matching, matching buyers and sellers. 
both yeah. the talent solutions uh, side of the house and marketing. I think, the, and by the, the way, house. I think they took the hit now because they knew they were going to take a huge hit in other, you know, in, in other performance areas. And so this was this quarter, this was the easiest time to take the hit. That's that's true, but it's it's tough having to appease shareholders, and that's oh, why I'm ridiculous. well. That's why I'm in awe of what Amazon has done. Amazon has set the expectation that they're not profitable, that they reinvest, and so when you, when you look, I mean, we well, we talked about the the four. What was the four amigos? What was the the YouTube video that you talked about a few weeks ago? The four brothers. Oh, the, the four, four horsemen. The four yeah, horsemen. The, four horsemen. Yeah. <laughs> the, the gang of four. Yeah, the, four the, the gang of four. When, when, the four the, horsemen. The 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 amigos. The four yeah, amigos. Exactly. The four. Well, in the video, yeah, in the, in the video when <laughs> Professor Galloway is talking about this, he shows the diff- Walmart versus Amazon, and in the right. whole time over the last ten years, Amazon basically a little profit. A little loss, a little bit more profit, a huge loss. Like every year, just no consistency at all. Then you look at Walmart, a little bit more profit every year, every year. And then they disappointed the market the one year and their stock just tanked. Yeah. And the whole time, Amazon's become one of the most valuable companies in the world and Walmart stagnated, even though they're showing, you know. So I think that this is tough if they made this decision to basically say, hey, look, we have to do this because for the for the shareholders this is the best thing to do. If this was Amazon, Amazon would have kept that business going, right? Yes, that's right. I think that's right. I think that's exactly right. Because if you look at what Amazon did with the early days of you know the Amazon Cloud um, and all of the things they were doing on the enterprise side early on, people were like, "What the hell are you doing?" I mean, this is crazy, ridiculous, and it's now. It's just almost infrastructure, right? I mean, it's just you just assume that you're going to develop on you know the Amazon cloud. I mean, it's just the way it goes, and I think that's a, that's a great comparison, right? I mean, have you seen that? Have you, there's a, there's an awesome cartoon making the rounds. It's this wonderful cartoon of uh, it's like three people around a campfire. Um, and basically, you know, it's obviously Armageddon or, you know, the apocalypse has happened. And basically it's one person saying to another at the campfire, yeah, we could have saved the world, but in the meantime, we created some great shareholder value. <laughs> <laughs> I just think that's so great. Oh my gosh. That's so, so awesome. That's so perfect. So it's my, so my, awesome. my little take here on the, uh, wall street journal, you know, removing the LinkedIn share button and, and. I don't know when we talked about it. You, you know, you brought it up quite a long time ago that LinkedIn would start to compete against Wall Street Journal. And right. Here we go. Exactly. Yeah. You know, we're seeing this in Wall Street Journal. Obviously, this is sort of uh, in consequence of that. But the the article talks about the fact that there might be an issue with shareability on LinkedIn. Now, whether that's the, because uh, the people on there are, are more apt to stay in the program itself and not or stay in the, in the site itself and not click over and go to somebody's site or whether it's just the user experience is a little bit different and does it aid that or whether the groups are all cluttered. I mean, there's a lot of different things talked about in this article, but I wanted to go to our own analytics. So I went to Content Marketing Institute Analytics and kind of looked at it and I wanted to know what our sharing numbers were because this article here from Publishing Executive says that what they're seeing is that Twitter is by far performs better than LinkedIn does. So I'm like, okay, well, let's, let's see if it's true for us right, too. Let's so go I, see the numbers. So here's, here's the numbers. So uh, this is in the last 30 days of uh, traffic to Content Marketing Institute. 14% of our referral traffic comes from Twitter. 14%. Wow. You know what number two is? 
This is just in social media sites, by the way. Number two social media site, Facebook. By a is that very, right? Yeah, 14%, actually, just a hair under. So they're, they're almost identical in the number of referrals, and LinkedIn is 9%. And I have to tell you, we're pretty active on all three. So it's not that we're you know not active in LinkedIn and see and, and what's weird is is I, so I'm just telling you this because I think it's weird. I have more followers on LinkedIn than any that than uh, well Facebook. now that's now well right now, because now you're a LinkedIn you're the LinkedIn God influencer guy right I mean that's what, I'm, you yes, get what the, I'm trying I'm trying to make a point here Robert you just <laughs> cut me off okay stole sorry. my thunder I'm sorry. Yes. I'm a LinkedIn influencer, and they've given me a lot of promotion. So I love the folks at LinkedIn, and I, my my followers went from like something really low to 115,000 or something in a very short period of time. So I love that. Now I share a Content Marketing Institute article every day to those 115,000 folks. Every day, I do. Plus, we have our commute big. You know, we've got hundreds of thousands of people in the different communities that we service. We've got multiple communities. We're doing lots and lots of different things way way more people that we're we should be technically able to reach on linkedin and yet look at these statistics yeah odd just odd head scratching odd so just trying to just trying to figure that one out i don't even know i don't even know what the reasoning is well i think you know i, I i'm not even going to hazard a guess here but you know the, i mean if i were to hazard a guess it would be you know i i know i don't read a lot i mean i read you know i, I read some on linkedin um, and I have a LinkedIn channel on my Flipboard that I like to sort of breeze through in the evening. But I don't find myself reading a lot of content on LinkedIn. Um, and I wonder if that's I wonder well, if you know I wonder if that's it. Well, look at the new algorithm too, and I think this plays. Yeah, this yeah, probably plays into the for, algorithm. For sure, if you sure. if you create your content as part of LinkedIn's publishing, if you publish your own information, you're probably getting way more traffic to that article. Fair enough. Yeah. From, yep. from yep. a link. Fair enough. And that's, by the way, Facebook does that too. So it's not that we're, you know, we're not saying, oh, LinkedIn shouldn't be doing that. They're, they're right. all going to do it because right. they want they want you to stay in that platform so they can show you more ads. Of course. So it's just interesting. Very interesting. Well, speaking of showing us more ads, we have a wonderful, wonderful sponsor that's continuing here. Just a fantastic. I got a chance to go read. Their last one, it was just, it was, it was really good. I have to say, it was really, really good. And I know this week's is even better. So you read? That's great that you read the ads. I stuff absolutely we, this is, do. This is good. So of yes, of course I love our sponsors. Our sponsors rock the jukebox again. Yes, absolutely. So this old marketing's sponsor this week is our our good friends at Ad Station. It is hard enough growing a large and loyal group of fans who follow your content. Don't we know it, Robert? But we do. What's even harder is finding a way to make money or monetize those users in some way or to advertise to those users with your own content, whatever you're trying to do, without driving them away. It's tough. And it takes a very delicate touch. And of course, if you listen to this, you know that it takes a delicate touch. This the show is all about delicate. A anyway. delicate touch. A delicate touch. <laughs> a delta. Delicate. Delicate. Anyway, we have a case study from a company called Prime Publishing, a content publisher with over 6 million subscribers. So this case study walks through how Prime Publishing wanted to monetize their users and how they reached out to AdStation and began sending targeted weekly advertising to their subscribers that made sense. It's a fascinating example of how to make money from your content in a safe and effective way. 
So I please want you to check this out. Prime Publishing Case Study. You can find it here at bit.ly.com slash adstation dash case dash study. bit.ly.com slash adstation dash case dash study. And thanks to our friends at AdStation for their generous support of this old marketing. You can find this in the show notes. And, of course, when we uh, promote the blog post on Saturday on contentmarketinginstitute.com, you can get it there as well. So thank you so much for uh, for your support of uh, this old marketing. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And I love that it's a case study. I love that it's an actual example of of, of somebody doing something really, really Which, well. by the way, is not easy. It's not easy no, to get no. case studies from these people to say, oh, yeah, you can use me as a guinea pig. But, they, you yeah. know, it's a, it's a really good story. So I would just say if, you, if you're interested in this kind of uh, product and service, go check it out. Absolutely. Please do. Please do go check it out. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it is time for your favorite segment of the show. It is our rants and rave section where Joe and I go off a little bit of a rant or a little bit of a rave on something that makes us feel like... I don't know, monkey, puppy, baby, or it makes us feel like the opposite of that. Come on, man. Um, okay, so, okay, so here we go. I, I have this old marketing this week, so I'm going first. And I have a rave to talk about. Um, this, first of all, hat tip here to my good friend and colleague, Dr. Tim Walters, who pointed this article to me. This is just, I mean, this, I mean, I, I could have written 2000 words on this. Um, and so hang with me here because this is, I mean, I really, really think this is a, this is an article that, you know, will generate, if you go look at it, a lot of thinking on your part. So the article comes from marketingjournal.org. Uh, um, and it's an interview with John Hagel III, who's the co-chairman for Deloitte's uh, Center for the Edge, which is an innovation thing. And he wrote a book that you probably read called Net Worth and another one called Net Gain, So, um, which I read. They were, they're, they're a little old at this point, but they're just great, great, great books. Anyway, so he's a McKinsey guy, big, big thinking strategy guy. And the title of the article is Scaling Trust, Marketing in a New Key, um, which is the interview with him. And so in the article, he's being interviewed about this new way to innovate around business models rather than technology. The interviewer starts off by saying, well, we talk about disruption in technology. And he says, yeah, no, let's talk about innovations and disruption in business models. And in that context, he says he's intrigued by the growing potential to scale a business um, and he said, in something that's been around for centuries, uh, but for the very wealthy and only the very successful in most cases, and it's what he calls the trusted advisor uh, model. And what's that? And these are now his words. He says, it's someone who, rather than sitting on the other side trying to push more and more products and services to me, crosses the table to sit next to me and gets to know me so well that he or she can proactively recommend things to me that I had not even asked about, but turn out to be extremely relevant to my context, needs, and aspirations. That's a quote from the article and from his interview. Now, of course, what he's describing here is content marketing at its core, right? He doesn't even call it content marketing, but of course, it's content marketing at its core. And the article goes on to talk about what he calls the customer centricity business model and how the idea of a custod or trusted advisor has been around forever, uh, but only to the sort of, you know, the idea of the wealthy, of the personal shopper, of the designer, of the concierge doctor, the lawyer, and all that kind of stuff, because the wealthy could spend enough to justify significant time and effort for those people to actually go out and curate the right solutions for whatever whatever they whatever they whatever they need change he said basically the disruption of digital and content and experiences and all the things that customers now have 
has brought basically a mass market approach to this becoming a trusted advisor idea. And he calls it the customer-centric business model rather than the product-centric business model. Again, just reeks of content marketing, right? So in other words, he's suggesting that we take this idea of content marketing or trusted advisor to the creation of valuable content-driven experiences, basically quite literally down to the foundation of the business model. He thinks that the entire core of the business has to change in order for a content-driven model that ultimately, uh, and in his words, this is again a quote from the article, such brands ultimately require product agnosticism. In other words, if a company's really going to be at the gain, the trust of customers, it's got to be prepared to offer the products and services of other companies and even of competitors. This will usually involve a fundamental redefinition of the business. Now, that's where I start to go off the rails a little bit with him and what he's talking about here because it's a very interesting idea and a huge vote for content marketing as a core piece of a business strategy. But he's taking an even bigger step than we even take it, right? He's suggesting that this is, becomes the basis of your entire business where you have to restructure the goals to align with product curation, basically recommending the best product independent of cheers or not, and becoming assistive with every single step of the buyer's journey. And that's where I think the real divergence is here because I think that's probably a bridge too far for most companies, certainly a bridge too far for most companies we speak with, and maybe impossible for businesses going down the road. But here's the interesting thing to me, and this is where it sort of diverges into two roads that I think is fascinating. So one other quote that I'll give you from the articles here is he says, look, it's not likely to work for every business. He said it's most likely to be disruptive for really established businesses, both those that are on the internet and brick and mortar, he said, because they're addicted to advertising revenue models and will find it really hard to shift to a subscription-based model. And he says, basically, if you manufacture products or retailers have their own products, they're trying to sell that, and that's really, there's a deep aversion to this sort of subscription-based model. Notice the word of the use of the word subscription there. And that's the fork in the road for me because, to me, it's about the idea of content marketing being fundamental to the business. The idea of an approach of content marketing is the fundamental approach to creating a customer-centric business these days. So if we believe that customer centricity has any traction at all, what he's saying is, is that customer being customer-centric with the idea of creating these valuable content experiences is the way that you're going to do that. And a subscription model is the way to actually do that. It basically funnels out all of the bad customers that you would ever have in your funnel. It's, it's basically a funnel cleanse, if you will. But here's the interesting other side of that road. This new business that he's talking about, the one that the established businesses can never evolve into, this new company, this startup, whatever it is, it looks to me a lot like, quite frankly, the Content Marketing Institute model, Right. Here's somebody that a business that could specialize in a vertical. It could be insurance, it could be medicine, it could be financial services, and they're the best. And they have this trusted advisor relationship. And there's one kind of company that matches this that is in dire need of a business remodel, sort of fundamental transition. To me, it's publishers. I think this is a really interesting business model that publishers could explore and really get into this idea of being trusted advisor. And you think about this from the product side for a minute, and yeah, you've got like a gym company like Lifetime Fitness and their Experience Life magazine, and of course, they're helping you select the best yoga mat and the best diets and the best home gym equipment, stuff that has nothing to do with what they do, really, but has everything to do with them creating a greater customer that has affinity for what they do, content marketing at its core. But if you look on the publisher side, 
it's a fundamental business disruption to be able to say, we're going to now be the trusted advisor for you to help you select. And so here's publishers perhaps offering up products from multiple manufacturers as a means of helping consumers select the right one for whatever their needs or aspirations are. Just a fascinating lens on this. And I just think a really, if you're a publisher or if you're thinking about new business models, this is a really interesting article for you to go get to know. That's, that's my rave. Oh, this is fantastic. And by the way, this is the fu- that's the future of the media business right yeah, there. exactly. We've talked about it many times, and I, I mentioned it. And I mean, a lot of what this talks about is exactly what, uh, I mean, to an extent, what you talk about in experiences. But really, when I talk about in Content Inc., that's the model. Yeah, exactly and that's right. Why you don't, and that's why it's easier for small businesses and entrepreneurs to do this because they don't have to make that cultural shift that he talks about, having to make, which is almost impossible today right. in a lot of ways to do that. So I, but so what's the future of the media company if advertising doesn't work as a model? It's this. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely this. I just think so. it's, it's just a great, it's a great, it made me think so much. I mean, I just, I mean, the notes I took on it, I took, you know, I took 2000 words of notes and, and I'm, you know, I'm sorry that went on a little long, but it's just, it was, it's really, really made me you think. Do a blog post about that. You I, almost I, have it. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just just do it. Just, just do it. Just do it. Just, just do, it. do it. Just do it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You know what? Have you seen um, the Will It Blend yes, version of that? I have. Of if you okay, so for those of you in the audience, if for those of you in the audience who <laughs> haven't seen the Will It Blend with Shia LaBeouf doing, just do it. It is so so good. It's great. It's the best. Yeah, they're just sort there. of ignoring him. Just yeah. sort of looking at him. Oh, like, it's what so the great. Heck is going on? So, actually, a really interesting segue. Based on your idea of building a subscription model as the core differentiator here. So uh, this is an interesting post here. This is off the, the Buffer blog. And uh, and our community manager, Monina Wagner, thank you, Monina, totes props to you, sent us this. <laughs> and this, she'll love that. Uh, this is both a rant and a rave, so you'll, you'll sort of get where I'm going with this one. So basically, um, I think it's Kevin Lee. I don't think it's Kevin Lee. Kevin Lee just spells it differently at Buffer talks about how they've stopped all efforts to grow their email list. There was a time where they grew it incredibly well, including doubling their list over a month's period in the past. And and now they've decided to shift all that focus away from any calls to action on their blog or their website for the e-newsletter and focusing everything on product signups. Now, first, I, I love the honesty in this article. There's also a a podcast that I listen to, uh, or an audio version that goes along with it, so it's, it's worth listening to. So, and you can feel the struggle that they're they're, yeah. they're sort of dealing with to figure out what they're going to do. So, they have forty four thousand email subscribers, and they're really not sure what to do with them. And the rant part of this whole thing that I'm talking about here is similar to what most companies are doing today. I think so. So, Buffer doesn't have a plan for that, they, and seemingly they've never had a plan for what to do with their email list. And Kevin mentions things that they could be doing, like lead nurturing, webinar signups, merging them with their CRM system, or doing nothing at all. And at first glance, there there actually are more more questions that need to be answered before you can go further. For example, I want to know, are, are people that subscribing to their e-newsletters better customers? Are they better buffer customers? I would want to know that. That's something that we could find out. In going... Into the comments of this post, there are a number of people that straight out say that they wouldn't have gotten the content at all from Buffer if it wasn't for their email newsletter. So that's interesting. That's very important. But more so, what's the difference between those that subscribe to the e-newsletter and those that don't? We can get that data. 
Are we creating a better customer? I don't know. And also, what an amazing way to get customer feedback or content feedback. What is resonating? So I guess I wonder if they had more subscription options with you know the email leading the way, if they would learn, like we have at CMI, that those people that subscribe to most content become their best customers. I just don't know if they're asking the right questions. So, so anyways, my takeaway here is, is this. Get a plan. You know, just make... <laughs> That just make it's, just, it's terrible, right? Like make the choice to do something. So I I do I do like the fact that they are just do it. Just see, it's great. This is the just do it episode of PNI's just get a plan. I love that. Just get I mean, a plan. I, you know, I I do honestly go to Amazon, like, add plan to your shopping cart. <laughs> And please just put it on Prime and get one tomorrow, would you? It'll be there before 11 a.m. tomorrow morning. Now, here's the thing. I like the fact that they aren't doing anything with it right now because they they don't want to focus on growing email and growing their customers at the same time. If they don't have a plan, right. Well, they're really focused on growing their customers, and those call to actions are really important. But I'm not sure I agree with that, that they're just sort of saying, well, the email, just let it go. I'm I'm not sure I agree with that. I actually don't. But at least they're making a choice, right? At least they're right. saying, look. That's right. Just we, we don't have a plan, so just let the email go, whatever. I guess what I would say is I would just simply start asking questions about what that own database could become or what information or insight they can get out of that. Make some hypothesis around it, test it out, and, and go from there. But, but yes, just get, get a plan for it. And that, by the way, <laughs> what I love, this is the rave about this. This is like most companies we talk to. Like oh yeah, right. yeah. We got twenty five thousand subscribers over here. We just you know we just been collecting them. We we don't really do well. What they with have them. is twenty five thousand email addresses. Yes, right. Yeah, and that's, that's the right. real you know. So if you're looking for the first measurable thing that a subscriber brings, is you go okay. I have twenty five thousand email addresses. What if that was twenty five thousand email, first name, last name, phone number, physical address, day, you know, content they consumed demographic SIC code. I mean, basically just, I mean, think of it as an 25,000, an enriched database of the people who are consuming content and that you could use for all kinds of different ways. And now all of a sudden you've got something a little more interesting than 25,000 emails. Well, that's what I love. And, and it, when I was talking about the Content Inc. model with, with Andrew Davis, or, you know, our good friend Andrew, he basically said, oh, well, that's great. When you build a subscription list, you're basically creating a pre-customer database. Of, yes, they, they yes. Will, yeah, they I will be customers idea. someday, that's but exactly. they're not customers yet. And it's I'm a great like, way oh, to I think about that. it. It's a great way to think about it. There you go. Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you for that. And now it is time for the namesake of our show, This Old Marketing. And I just have – this is – I have to tell you, this is one of my new favorites. I I really, really love this. First of all, huge hat tip to Steve. Steve, I don't know your last name. Your Twitter handle is at uh, Steve Midwest. So I'm going to guess that you're Steve in the Midwest. Um, and he sent us over this through Twitter. I went and started to look at the site, and I fell in love with this thing. I just I thought it was so, so great. In fact, I thought it was so great, I emailed them. And I'll tell you about that in just a second. Um, and I want to write a longer post about these guys. But So the, 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 this old marketing that we're going to talk about is Foley Engines, F-O-L-E-Y Engines. And we'll link right to their website because I think it's a great lesson. i got to be honest. It's just wonderful. So 
right from their website, the Foley Engines um, has been around since 1916. Um, and in fact, January of this year is their 100, 100 years of being in business. Um, they're, as they say, in their third generation of hands-on family management, they seek to grow their company by focusing on people who want their distributor to do more, stock more heavily, ship more quickly, do more development, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They're an engine company. They sell diesel engines and parts to diesel engines. And so they've been doing it for 100 years. Um, As they say, they've been around since uh, Frank Perkins started Perkins Engines, which is maybe the more popular brand that you would have heard of. They're based out of uh, Worcester, Massachusetts, I believe. And so if you go to their website, which is the first thing you're going to notice is they don't look, it's not your standard, I mean, you know, it's a fine mid-sized company website it's certainly the design is not the end-all be-all of you know designs b2b sort of organization it looks a little dated but quite frankly who cares the content is great the content is really really good and and it looks like a publication almost because they don't hit you up front with products they don't hit you up front with like here's you buy this now and they've won this many awards or here's why we're so awesome the first thing they hit you with is content and they have basically a few different ways that they're going to market with content. One is their what they call their Dr. Diesel blog. Um, and Dr. Diesel is sort of a persona they've created. And it features – the blog features two things. is the Ask Dr. Diesel. As they put it, knowledge is power, power to build ties to engine users, to build a relationship with their customers and share their 90 years of knowledge in many, many ways. They've called this Ask Dr. Diesel, where you can basically ask any question you have about diesel engines, and Dr. Diesel will answer it for you just basically right there. Then they also create this Tech Tips, which are sort of more evergreen content, and I just went in and browsed around, and you know, there's like these PDFs that are wonderfully – they don't mean anything to me because I don't know anything about diesel engines, but there's one on blending – how do you blend the oil um, – how do you do marine transmission fluid? How do you do uh, adventures in fractional interchange and all that kind of stuff? And it's just great. And so then I went to go sign up. And the interesting thing is when you go to sign up, you can contact them on this form or you can sign up for the – they don't assume that if you're a lead that you automatically want to get their content. There's a separate part of the form that says, hey, if you want to sign up for the content that we put out, you can do that here. But if you want to talk to somebody or get talk to a salesperson or anything like that, you can sign up there. And I just love that because it's so simple. It's nothing fancy about it, nothing you know, sort of you know, not – cascading forms and all this kind of stuff. It's just a simple sign-up form that basically says, here's what we do, here's the way you should subscribe. And I just, I loved it for its simplicity, for its straightforwardness, for its just, it's just, it was just wonderful. So I was like, okay, because of the sort of adventures that we've been through over the last three weeks, I don't want to just assume, maybe this is, maybe they hate this. Maybe they're looking to change out the way that they do business. Maybe they just can't afford a new website and, and all that kind of stuff. So I emailed them. I emailed and first of all, Dr. Diesel emailed me back, so I love that they stayed in character. Um, Dr. Diesel emailed me back, and he said, and this is his, his – I'm assuming it's a he, by the way, Dr. Diesel, because of the way it looks on the site. But So he says, quote, we set ourselves apart from other people who sell engine parts, by not by price, but by positioning ourselves as the experts who are willing to share all of our knowledge. We publish more than 200 breezily written Dr. Diesel tech tips every year on our website for mechanics and equipment owners. They're short, brief, and hopefully very helpful. They also convey our expertise and our culture, which is basically we'll lie down in front of the UPS truck if we have to in order to get your parts out the door on time. 
that was just a quick quote that he gave me in a quick email, and we're going to follow up and, and sort of do a, a more in-depth of what they've been doing for the last number of years. And I think it's just a great example of this old marketing. I, I love this example. I love I, I love everything, even though you're right, it's dated. I, I love everything about this site. It's so wonderful. I love the fact yeah. that the little tractor says a little poof of smoke. Yeah. <laughs> it's not slick. It's not, it's not like sort of, it's not responsive design. It's not, it is so perfect for what they do. It's just, I think it's great. They're getting a lot of usage off of the image of Dr. Diesel too. Yes, got, ex- exactly. The little cartoon of Dr. Diesel is just great. It's just, so I just, I loved it. And I think it's a great example of this old marketing. Wonderful. Fantastic. So, uh, so what's your next couple weeks look like, my friend? Well, let's see. I am, as we, as we record this, uh, I am in the wonderful and uh, soon to be snowy, I understand, Washington, D.C., um, and then I see you a little later this week for a very brief um, interlude, I would say. And then uh, and then I go home and I'm heads down getting ready for ICC, writing my presentation, getting some writing assignments I have done. I will be basically heads down for most of February unless something comes up that I'm not aware of yet. Yep, absolutely. How about yeah, we, you? We've got, we've got our little sales meeting this week. And, uh, and then after that, I'm... Uh, the good news is I'm about 90% of the way done with the content marketing world agenda. I had lots of help on that, so I'm feeling really good uh, and proud to, to maintain our uh, – to, to make sure that we have our agenda up and running six months ahead of time is critically important. Nobody else in the industry does this, by the way. We have our full agenda up six months before that event. And there's a lot of people <laughs> that go through a lot of horrible things to make sure that happens, <laughs> including yourself. So thank exactly. you. And uh, it's just been fun to see that happen. It'll be even more fun to see it done. So absolutely. What, absolutely. Well, speaking of done, we are done. That is it for Joe Polizzi. This is Robert Rose signing off. And, you know, we I mean, I got to tell you, thank you so much to Steve Midwest. And thank you so much to Luke. And thank you so much to Tim. We absolutely adore the hat tips and the and the pointers and the hashtag this old marketing on Twitter if you want to send us a story. Um, and if you've got us, if you like email, you prefer email, send us an email this old marketing at contentinstitute.com. And if you liked this episode number 117, we hope you'll consider subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher.com. All the links that we talked about will be available on the show notes that we'll publish on Monday night. And, of course, the show notes will be available in the blog post in full regalia on thisoldmarketing.com on Saturdays. Until then, everybody, it is your story to tell. Tell it well. We'll see you next week on This Old Marketing. show is part of the CMI Podcast Network. Check out all of our shows at contentmarketinginstitute.com.